0: So good to have you with us tonight. If you got your Bible, Job chapter eight. Job chapter eight, just twenty-two verses this evening. This is our tenth message uh, in the book of Job. And this will conclude our time for this year, and we'll pick it up in January when we start our Wednesday evenings again. But right now, I just want to look with you at the book of Job, the 8th chapter, and look at this is Bildad now who's going to be on the scene. And so tonight, we're going to behold Bildad. He is the second of the two counselors, or three counselors, that comes and offers his advice to Job. Now, what started out as a really great idea... Deteriorated very quickly. Things went south. Things went sour. Things became very sarcastic very quickly as Eliphaz and Bildad began to speak. Yet Bildad was, was less charitable. He was blunt. He was severe. He was a classic rationalist. He was very analytical, very theoretical in all of his approach. But there was no emotion, no, no empathy on his part whatsoever. As you recall, Eliphaz was, was experiential in his approach. He said, I have learned and I have observed, I have seen, he says. Everything was from what he had experienced, trying to help Job understand things from an experiential point of view. But now Bildad takes control of the conversation, and his counsel, unfortunately, will be just as empty as Eliphaz's was. So let's begin. Job 8, verse number 1. Notice with me point number 1, how he criticizes Job. And he criticizes Job in four ways. It says, Then Bildad, the Shuhite answered, How long will you say these things? And the words of your mouth, Be a mighty wind. What kind of counsel is that? How critical can you possibly be? He calls Job a a windbag. He says, "Joe, how long are you going to keep babbling on and on and on?" Now, why he does that, I have no idea. But you know, Job would probably speak simply because when he spoke, it would take his mind off of his pain, and maybe that would help him a little bit. I don't, I don't know. But to criticize him for his comments, telling him that they were too long, was so insensitive. Job was just looking for some kind of encouraging word, something that would be empathetic toward his situation, but Bildad, like Eliphaz, had no emotion, no empathy. So he criticizes his comments, and then he criticizes his creed. Look what he says in verse number three. Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert what is right? He wants to criticize Job's creed because he believes that Job has questioned the justice and the judgments of God. The word pervert means to twist. And uh, he was concerned that that's what Job was doing. Now, we know that Genesis 18.25 says, uh, shall not the judge of all the earth do that which is right? And then back in the book of Deuteronomy, the 32nd chapter in the fourth verse, it says, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are just and God is faithful and without injustice, righteous and upright as he. So Job knew that God was righteous. Job knew that God was just. That wasn't a question in Job's mind. But Eliphaz, or excuse me, Bildad, believes that he had insinuated that God was unjust for him to be in the situation that he was in. But that's not the case. Because God, this God, is righteous, just, and holy. And so he criticizes Job's view of God. Although Job has not said that, He is insinuating that Job is speaking those words. And then he says this. He criticizes his children. He says, if your sons sinned against him, then he delivered them into the power of their transgression. What an indictment against Job. Here's a man in grief. He's lost all 10 children, right? And he's sitting in pain. And now he accuses his children of transgression or at least... Job's transgression that killed his children. So I don't know about you, but that's not how you you know console someone who's in pain. But this is Bildad's approach because he's so non-emotional. He's very analytical in his approach to Job. And then he criticizes his character. Verse 5, if you would seek God and implore the compassion of the Almighty... If you are pure and upright, surely now he would rouse himself for you and restore your righteous estate. Though your beginning was insignificant, yet your end will increase greatly. He accuses Job and criticizes Job of not seeking God. How does he know Job hasn't sought God? How does he know Job is not walking with God intimately, daily? Well, he assumes that because of the great tragedy that's come upon his life. He just assumes that because you are experiencing all this tragedy, you must be a sinner. You must not be pure. You must not be righteous. You must not be seeking God. Well, it very well could be that him seeking God has brought him to this place where he is because God is going to teach him much more about him. But you see, Bildad doesn't take that into account. He is so missing the boat. He has not heard the heart of Job. It's like the husband-wife relationship, okay? The wife has an issue, so she begins to address the issue and talk about it. With a husband, he hears the words, but doesn't necessarily hear the heart of his wife. So he begins to analyze the words. He begins to critique the words. He begins to theorize about what words she is saying, and then gives her an answer based on her words, not based on the heart that's speaking. And thus you have marital conflict. Because she says, my husband doesn't listen to me. My husband doesn't hear me. And he says, I heard every word you said. It's not the words you need to hear. It's the heart you need to hear. How do I know that? I'm speaking from experience now, right? Because I need to listen to my wife's heart. And understand what's going on on the inside of her. I can hear her words and come to a criticism of her words. Or I can listen for her heart. And begin to understand what's really going on inside of her. Well, neither Eliphaz nor Bildad did that. And Bildad is very critical. And so he criticizes Job. He criticizes his comments. He criticizes his children. His creed. His character. And then he calls for Job. Listen. He calls for Job to trust in human wisdom. Look what he says. Verse number eight. Please inquire of past generations and consider the things searched out by their fathers. For we are only of yesterday and know nothing. Because our days on earth are as a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you and bring forth words from their minds? Now think about that. He is asking Job to consider the traditions of the past. to look at the men of the past and go and search out what they have experienced and what they've gone through. Listen, who's got time for that? Job doesn't have time to go down to the library and read up on this stuff. He doesn't have time to go around searching for these men who have gone through these past experiences. He's in pain. Enormous pain. He needs counsel. He needs wisdom. He needs direction. He needs help. He doesn't need someone to tell him that there are other men down that have lived be, before us who have answers. You need to search them out, Job. You need to go see and see what their minds say. But the problem with that is, is he's turning him away from heavenly wisdom to earthly wisdom. He's pointing him in the wrong direction. Now, I'm, I can imagine a build that has has, at, at, at best, Job's interest in terms of what has happened in the past. But pray tell, what person has gone through what Job's gone through? How could they ever begin to speak to him about the things of their lives or things that they have heard of or things that they have seen when in reality Job has faced things way beyond anything you and I could ever imagine, plus them. So he accuses Job of not seeking God, not searching after God. He says about Job that he is not pure and upright, but God has already said that he's pure and upright. Now remember, Bildad has no idea about the conversation in heaven. Job doesn't, Eliphaz doesn't, Bildad doesn't, Zophar doesn't, Elihu doesn't, none of them do, right? We do because we've read the narrative. We do because we have the story, but they did not. And so they come to a conclusion, a conclusion that's erroneous, a conclusion that's not true. But they want to justify their counsel. So he criticizes Job, and then he calls on Job not to search out truth, but to search out human wisdom, men from the past. So he, in essence, is directing them away from God. Now, granted... They didn't have a Bible that they could open up and read and study. We understand that. We do, right? We can open up the Scriptures, and we can read the Scriptures, and we can search for wisdom knowing that the Bible gives us wisdom. They didn't have a Bible, right? And so maybe Bildad's whole emphasis was on godly wisdom from the past, and men who were walking with the Lord. doesn't say that, but maybe that was what he inferred. So he criticizes Job, and then he calls on Job to trust in human wisdom, and then he begins to condemn Job. Listen to this. Can the papyrus grow up without a marsh? Can the rushes grow without water? While it's still green and not cut down, yet it withers before any other plant, so are the paths of all who forgot God. So he says, look, you know about the papyrus. You know it lives in moisture, needs lots of water. But once the water is gone, it dries up, and it withers. Job, that's you. You're withering. Why? Simply because you have forgotten God. Now, is it true that if we forget God, it's going to hinder our walk with the Lord? Yes. That's very true. But one thing Job hasn't forgotten is his God. That's why when he criticizes his children... When in chapter 1, of verse number 5, he would make sacrifices on behalf of his children. On behalf of sins that they might have committed. Remember way back in Job chapter 1, we studied that. He is criticizing Job's leadership of his children. And now he's telling them that they have sinned, or at least you have sinned, Job. And now they're dead. And yet Job is a pure, upright, blameless man. Fearing God, turning away from evil. Seeking God, looking out. To become closer with God. And now he's being criticized. Now he's being condemned. He's being condemned because Bildad is saying, you have forgotten God. You have forgotten all that he is and and all that he wants to teach you. One thing Job never forgot was his God. He would always reference the Lord. He was one who was walking with his God. But you see, Bildad didn't have a chance to observe that in Job's life on a regular basis. He knew about Job. He was friends of Job. But to accuse him of not seeking God and walking after God and living a pure and upright life, that's just not Job. We know that. We've never met the man except on the pages of Scripture. And Bildad was his friend. And that's what he accuses Job of. So he condemns him. So are the paths of those who forget God and the hope of the godless will perish. In other words, if you forget God, You are living a life of godlessness. And your hope is going to perish, Job. Then he says, whose confidence is fragile and whose trust a spider's web. He trusts in his house, but it does not stand. He holds fast to it, but it does not endure. He's saying, not only have you forgotten your God, you have failed to truly trust your God. Your trust is in things that don't matter. They're like a spider's web. You ever lean against a spider's web? doesn't hold anything up except a spider or a fly it catches, right? doesn't hold us up. But he says, look, you're like the guy who trusted his house and his riches and his possessions. There's nothing there. It's hopeless, Job. So he's condemning Job's lifestyle. He's condemning Job's heart. He's coming down on Job. And the remarkable thing about this is that Job never says anything. Job is completely quiet. You'd think he'd want to haul off and hit the guy when he talks about his kids, but he doesn't do that. He just sits there and listens, and listens to the reprimand that he receives, which makes you appreciate Job even all the more, because what would we do? How would we react? And so, as you read on, it says, "...he thrives before the sun, and his shoot spread out over his garden." His roots wrap around a rock pile. He grasps a house of stones. If he is removed from the place, then it will deny him, saying, I never saw you. Behold, this is the joy of his way. And out of the dust, others will spring. In other words, Job, because you're not a righteous man, you have no joy. Well, of course he has no joy. He's living in pain, he's lost everything. So he condemns Job, he criticizes Job, he calls on Job to trust in human wisdom, and then lastly, he, he confronts Job. He says, Job, look. Lo, God will not reject a man of integrity. In other words, if you're a man of integrity, he's not going to reject you. We already know he's a blameless guy. We already know he's, he's an upright guy. He says, nor will he support the evildoers. God doesn't support evildoers, Job. And then he says, he will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. If you truly are a man of integrity. And those who hate you will be clothed with shame and the tent of the wicked will be no longer. In other words, the wicked will lose and the the righteous will will be victorious. There's nothing about what Bildad says that has any inkling as to what's happening in Job's life. He has missed it completely. He's like the man who asked his wife this question. If you could have anything in the world for one day, what would you want? She responded with a smile. Well, I'd really love to be six again. Early the next morning, the morning after her birthday, he got her up and off they went to a nearby waffle house for waffles and whipped cream and a tall glass of milk. Next they headed to a local theme park. What a day. He put... Her on every ride in the park. The death slide, the cyclone whip, the screaming loop, the wall of fear, the double ring Ferris wheel, everything they had, she rode. Five hours later, she staggers out of the theme park with her husband. Her head's reeling, her stomach is still churning. Off to McDonald's next. He ordered two Big Macs along with extra fies and a thick chocolate shake. After they took in an exciting animated movie, the latest Hollywood blockbuster. They had popcorn and Pepsis and a bag of M&M's, topping off the day full of fabulous six-year-old adventures. Exhausted, she stumbles into the house late that evening with her husband and collapses on the bed. That was when he leaned over and softly whispered in her ear, well, dear, how'd you like being six again? One eye opened, and she said, well, I actually meant my dress size. That's Bildad. He has completely missed everything Job has said. He wants to use theories. He wants to talk about water and marshes and papyri. And he wants to talk about men of the past. And he wants to talk about everything about what, except what Job needs. Uh, jo- Job can sit there and say, you know, what about my oozing sores that are, that are filled with maggots? Do you have anything for them? Do you you have anything for for what's going on inside of me emotionally right now? Do you have any words of wisdom at all, Bildad? But he doesn't. Because Bildad doesn't approach Job from anything other than an analytical, theoretical point of view. He doesn't really understand what's happening in the life of Job because he comes with a preconceived idea as to why Job is the way he is. You can never do that because you just don't know. You just don't know. But you know what? There is somebody who does know, and that is the Lord God of Israel. So turn with me in your Bible to the book of Isaiah for a moment. I want to show you something. Last week, we were in Isaiah 40. Remember that? Isaiah 40, Isaiah 41. I'm going to take you to Isaiah chapter 9 because Isaiah is telling them that hope is coming. Hope is coming to Israel in the form of their Messiah. And we're going to read a very familiar verse of Scripture that you know very well. Isaiah 9, verse number 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Notice what it says. And his name will be called. Not his names are, but his name will be called. 800 times in the Old Testament... The word Shema is used with the Lord. Two hundred times in the New Testament. So a thousand times in Scripture, it's always in the singular and never in the plural. Because God doesn't have names. He only has a name. When the Bible speaks of a name, it speaks of attributes, speaks of character. It speaks of abilities. So when it talks about the name of the Lord, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe, right? It doesn't mean that God's name is Mr. Strong Tower. It means that that is the character of God. That's who he is. And so this son that's given, this child that is born, is a unique person. He's going to be wonderful. And that speaks of his incomprehensiveness, because he goes beyond anything you can ever imagine. He's going to be called Counselor, because he's absolutely invaluable. He's going to be called Mighty God, because he's invincible. He'll be called the Eternal Father, because... He is interminable. In other words, he cannot or he is unending or incapable of ever being terminated. And then lastly, he is called the Prince of Peace. In other words, he is incomparable. But notice what he says. He says he will be called Counselor. Counselor. Israel had received all kinds of counsel from the wrong people. And they listened to wrong counsel. But they needed the ultimate counselor to come. And that would be the Messiah. But the Bible says that never a man spoke as this man spoke in Matthew chapter 7. They had never heard anyone speak like the Christ. He spoke with authority. He spoke with compassion. He spoke with mercy. In fact, he said, Come unto me all ye that labor and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. He's the one who is able to do for Israel what no one else could do. Well, the same is true for for you and me. This Messiah that we're going to celebrate over the next several weeks into the month of December who came to this earth is a counselor. It's unfortunate that for the most part as Christians we don't go to him for counsel. But why should we? Let me tell you why. Because this counselor Is close. So close, he's actually in you. That's how close he is. There is no counselor you will ever go to that will be as close to you as Christ. In other words, the Bible says in Hebrews 13, verse number 5, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. In fact, The psalmist said in Psalm 139, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. The credentials of the Messiah are undeniable. The credentials of the Messiah are so unique that he is the one we go to for counsel. There's no one closer than he is. The great mystery of the Old Testament was Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul speaks of that in Colossians chapter 1, right? that which was concealed in the old would revealed in the new, was that Christ would actually be in you. He'd live within us. He'd put his spirit within us. He would make his abode with us. And so we realize that, that there is no counselor who is as close to you as Christ is. In other words, no matter where you go, your counselor is there. If you have a, a physical counselor that you go to, he's not going to be with you at the grocery store. He's not going to be with you at home. He's not going to be with you at work. This counselor is. That's how close he is. But not only is he close, he, he's confidential. He's confidential. He's confidential. Hebrews 2.17 says that he's our faithful and merciful high priest. In other words, the things you tell him, he tells no one else. You see, you can't trust anybody else to keep confidential what you tell them. But you can with Christ. Because he is the merciful and faithful high priest. Priest, you can safely share with him your deepest thoughts. He knows them anyway. So you just will share it with him. Just will verbalize it. You can't keep anything from him. He already knows because he's so close. So he's close, he's confidential, but he's compassionate. He's compassionate. Job's three friends were anything but compassionate. But our Lord is it says that he was 4:15 he was tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. If you've been rejected, he's been rejected because he knows rejection. If you've ever been lonely, there is no one more lonely than the Christ. If you've ever been persecuted, None of us have been persecuted like the Christ. If you've been treated unjustly, unfairly, no one has been, been treated more unfairly or unjustly than the perfect Son of God. If you've been abused, if you've been treated in a way that is way beyond one could ever imagine, The Christ is tempted on all points like we are, yet without sin. In other words, no matter what Bildad said, he could not relate to Job. Eliphaz could not relate to Job, nor Zophar, nor Elihu. But Christ can relate to Job. Just like for you. No one in the room can necessarily relate to what you're going through, whatever it may be, but Christ can Christ skin. That's the one you cry out to. That's the one you go to. He wants you to come to him. He wants you to cry out to him. He wants you to call upon his name. That's what he wants you to do. He's close. He's cognizant. Or excuse me, he's confidential. He's compassionate. And number four, he is cognizant. He's cognizant of everything. Listen to what the Bible says in John 2, 25. He did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. In other words, no one had to tell him anything about anybody else, because he already knew. When, When you go to a counselor, you have to tell him what's happening in your marriage, you have to tell him what's happening in your own personal life, right? Because he doesn't know. But not with Christ, he already knows. He knows about your marriage. He knows about your failures. He knows about your temptations. He knows about your sin. He knows everything. No one is like that except the Christ. Why would you spend your time going to someone who doesn't know you at all? Why would you spend your time going to talk to someone that's never with you when you go through the issues you're going through. Christ is, because he's in you. He is so close that no matter when you're tempted, no matter when you're persecuted, no matter when you're abused, no matter how bad things are, he's there. Not only is he there, he knows all that's going on. He knows what you're going to say before the words are on your lips. That's what Psalm 139 tells us. So he knows all these things. He doesn't have to be taught anything. You don't have to inform him as to what's happening so he can sort of understand. He already understands. Because he already knows. Because he's already been tempted at all points like we are, yet without sin. That's why Christ is the ultimate counselor. So when Isaiah is saying to The nation of Israel, this Messiah, who is divine because he's the son given. He's also human because he's a child that's born. This God-man is wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. But you got to know when he comes, he knows everything. He knows what's in man. You don't have to inform him of anything. You don't have to give him any statistics. He knows them all. He knows everything. He's actually going to be in you. They didn't know that in Isaiah's prophecy, but he actually would be in them based on the promise of the new covenant and how that would be revealed in a unique and special way through the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy in the New Testament. So, our Lord would be in them. So, not only is He close, not only is He confidential, not only is He compassionate, cognizant. In fact, Psalm 32 8 says, I will counsel you with my eye on you. <laughs> Think about that. I'm going to counsel you with my eye on you. In other words, <clears throat> I'm always watching you. You know, God's never so busy that He misses what you're doing because He was watching somebody else. Do you ever think about that? We have a lot of children in our family, right? We could watch one and miss what happens with the other seven, right? Because they might even be in another room. Or we could watch three or four or five of them because they're all around us, but miss what's happening with five, six, and seven back there, right? Because we don't know. That's not that way with God. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. In other words, he sees it all, he knows it all, he's experienced it all, and he's the God of truth that will counsel you, give you direction, and lead you in the way of righteousness. So this counselor is close, confidential, compassionate, cognizant, but more than that, he's capable. He is capable of doing anything He wants to do. And nobody else is. The Bible says, Ephesians 3, verse number 20, he is able to do far more abundantly, far exceedingly above whatever you can ever ask, whatever you think. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. Only the mighty God can be the ultimate counselor. The almighty king of the universe he is the only one capable of healing you. Only one capable of helping you. Only one capable of sustaining you. Only one capable of comforting you. The only one capable of counseling you. He's the only one capable of doing anything for you. Because he never goes tired. Never becomes weary. He is the everlasting God as we talked about last week. And he is the God of the universe. And that's what would lead, over in Isaiah chapter 26, these words to be spoken. Your name, even your memory, is the desire of our souls. Your name, O Lord. What is his name? Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace, Isaiah 40, be called Everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth. Lord, your name, even the memory of your name, is the ultimate desire of our souls. In other words, just to remember who you are is everything. Everything. And so what you have in Scripture is, we know Psalm 119.24 says um, that thy testimonies are my counselors. How does God counsel us? How does he instruct us in the way that we should go? He's given us his word. This is the thing that Job didn't have. Job did not have the word of God that he could open and read and study and come to a clearer understanding of of the character and nature of the God he served. You do. I do. We had this glorious opportunity to be able to say, Lord, what is it you have for me on this day? When I go through suffering and tribulation and hardship and difficulty, adversity, whatever it may be, loneliness, rejection, loss, no matter what it is you're going through, God says, I'm your counselor. I need you to come to me. I'm already in in you. I already know everything about you. And there's no one more compassionate than I am. Let me be the one to help you. Because I'm the only one capable of doing so. When you're lonely, I I feel that loneliness with my presence. When you're helpless, I give you my strength to sustain you. This is what I do. God is in the position to do for you what nobody else can. And as Christians, we have the glorious opportunity to walk with God, to talk with God, to lean upon God, to follow God, to serve God, because he is our counselor, our wonderful counselor, who is the mighty God. Job had some counselors. They, like most counselors are miserable counselors. They could not comfort Job. And even though they had some good theological background and training, they could not touch the deepest part of that man. Because only Christ can do that. Christ can touch the deepest part of a person because his words are life. And he he infuses life in you and me. And so when you go through hardship and difficulty, no matter what it may be, you have a counselor. You have the only counselor that matters, who is close enough to you to understand everything, who is compassionate enough to meet and to feel the needs that you have, who knows all things about you without ever having to be told, completely confidential, and the only one capable of moving you from point A to point B as you trust and follow him. Let me pray with you. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word and pray that, Lord, you direct us in the way that we should go, that we might honor and glorify your name. Thank you, Father, that you're our counselor. Thank you, Lord, that we can trust you and believe in you. Thank you, Lord, that no matter what happens, Lord, you are with us. And, Father, you want us to call on your name. May we do so every day of our lives without fail.